0: Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today's episode is the last guest episode of 2021. So I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who has listened to, has downloaded, to, has shared, to, who has listened to a second of the podcast over 2021 and 2020. And the, the podcast has gone on from strength to strength, and that's because of you guys listening to it. So today's episode is with the amazing Jessica Burke. So today's episode is one of those episodes I kind of wanted to do for a long time, and we discuss the likes of IVF, we discuss the likes of fertility for both men and women, myths and kind of also how to approach the the doctors and stuff like that, which can also be a, a a struggle for a lot of people, and I think I don't think that's kind of seen um, on a lot of people's sides, unfortunately. So. Jessica is a natural fertility specialist and she has over 15 years experience in the field of reproductive health and she's gained a reputation for helping women to successfully conceive where everything else has failed. So she has kind of witnessed the benefits of a combined approach to healthcare. and uh, she completed her training and qualifying in 2007 and then also now Jessica's closely working with consultants to provide the best healthcare for her patients and firmly believes that kind of an integrated evidence-based approach is, her, is is the key to their success and Jessica's first book the the guilt-free gourmet was released in September 2012 and I was co authored with her brother Jordan Burke as well and we talk an awful lot about a lot of difficult conversations and it was i was i could have spoke to jessica a lot on this and it kind of could have been three four five easily a, a series uh the amount of stuff that we want to go, go through so i hope you guys enjoy the episode with jessica burke and if you want to give her a follow it's at the fertility detective on instagram and uh if you want to head over to jessica burke.com as well so i hope you guys enjoy the episode with jessica burke jessica how are we
1: i'm great thank you so much for having me on
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I know we we're kind of chatting off a little, mm-hmm. uh, off air about kind of like the the drama that's going on in Jessica Burke's life. Um, yes, but uh, <laughs> well, we'll try and stay away for that for a little bit. Um, so... well, we have to
1: we have to tell people now. <laughs> yeah, they are going to be I'll wondering the, 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 the whole suspense. podcast. <laughs> so what Shane's referring to is the fact that I got back from Barcelona. Uh, recently just seeing fertility clinics. And in the time that I was gone, uh, my whole family got COVID. <laughs> so I'm hiding out at my parents' house. So that's the drama.
0: Because <laughs> yeah, like the Barcelona bit isn't the stressful part.
1: <laughs> no, definitely not.
0: <laughs> um, so for anyone that isn't aware of your story and what you, what you do for a living, can you kind of give us a little bit of background and kind of how you got into this realm? Because it's it's unique enough in, how, in this realm.
1: Yes, Um. Unlike many, I think, in this field um, who get into anything related to health, um, it's often triggered by a personal circumstance that you went through. So, for me, in terms of my personal background, very traditional upbringing and you know when it comes to leaving school and choosing your subject it was either going to be you know it's the usual law medicine or accounting now I'm useless at numbers so it was not going to be accounting Uh, but I was torn between law and medicine and my mum was like look you know you're 17 do law it's a good base degree you know what I mean so that's what I did and very shortly after starting college I became ill with glandular fever or something similar to it And I essentially had chronic fatigue. So I went from, you know, studying hard for my exams, playing every sport known to man to suddenly lying on the couch. And this is showing my age probably, but uh, and like all that was on TV was like Oprah. (laughs) This is before you had a million stations where you could choose what you were watching. Um, And I had a lot of time to think. (laughs) And it was a very disillusioning time, not only because my whole... Life, like my whole social structure had just been put on pause. But also, and this was nearly more important, was the fact that the very thing that I thought could help me, the thing that I had nearly studied in doing a medical degree, couldn't help me. That just absolutely floored me. This idea that, you know, went to doctor after doctor, well, it's not bacterial. So an antibiotic isn't going to help. Just go home and recover, best of luck to you kind of thing. And I was like, what? But I'm a young person who is completely flagging, no energy. I can't function. And you're telling me to just wait it out. So that was, that was huge for me. That was definitely very pivotal because I realized, okay, well, if the very thing I was going to study can't seem to help me, what's missing? Where's the missing link? And that led me basically on my own journey of trying to figure out more, I guess, prophylactic medicine, uh, understanding root cause. And it ultimately ended in, it was in my second year of law that I started studying acupuncture alongside my law degree, which I know a lot of my friends thought was insane. And uh, then finished law, knew after all the kind of head hunting chats that I was like, no, this this is not gonna be for me. So I kept going, um, went on to study in China, Saw what their health is like out there. Was super impressed. Knew that there was a different way of doing things, and then studied nutrition, clinical medicine, everything when I came back. So um, that is why, given that's a bit of a mouthful, that's why I settled on the term fertility detective because that's essentially what I do: is I try to get to the root cause of what's going on for an individual that could be preventing them from getting pregnant or staying pregnant.
0: Serious story. (laughs) Serious (laughs) story. In relation to kind of like, especially when you kind of, you've had the experience of like not necessarily getting the help that you necessarily wanted mm-hmm. or needed or whatever, maybe from the, the the medical professionals and stuff like that and kind of trying to get to the root cause. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously, you know, is a massive stress on the body and what's going on at the minute is a massive stress on the body. How much of an impact does stress have on the body when it comes to the likes of hormones, fertility, and general, just all functioning of the body.
1: And the immune system, huge, absolutely huge. But I suppose one has to be careful because you don't want to, it to be like a red flag to a bull. I never so. like to say to someone, oh, you know, like stress could be the cause of your fertility. I mean, that that's then you're just going to be stressed about being stressed. And yeah. that's not helpful to anyone. But we do have to acknowledge that it's it's really about consistency. The little things that happen over the course of each day, you know, the things that we can control, we can control our thoughts. We can control how we perceive events. You can control whether you pick up your phone and immerse yourself in the news and have your brain go into that vortex of overthinking or putting it aside or maybe choosing to do something else on your phone, such as a meditation app. We do have choice. Um, and I say this from experience, from I was one of those people last March, April, checking the news religiously every day, tracking the numbers. You know, it it was almost obsessive, I think, for people. Um, and who knew that we'd still be here a second Christmas running um, and all just totally jaded. So I think, if anything, it's, it's more the weariness that people have now more than acute stress. Um, and particularly within the field I'm working in, for fertility, you know something which I think people might have forgotten about now that we're also used to COVID, is that for anybody who is leading up to a fertility cycle at the moment, they're absolutely terrified, uh, terrified to go out to see family in case they're deemed to be a close contact, in which case their whole cycle will be postponed, or cancelled, you know, for for at least a month. So, and that's something that I've been seeing ongoing since. Well, obviously, last uh, spring, when they shut down the clinics um, to before they opened them, then it was around mid-May. It was intensely stressful at a time where, you know, the whole world was stressed. That was like a, a macrocosm. So that was the external bubble of stress, which just compounded someone's internal bubble of stress created by the fertility issues they were struggling with.
0: And what can what can be done realistically? Like what what way, what couple mechanisms could you like, do you kind of advise? Obviously depending on what the stressor is, obviously. Mm-hmm. But kind of like two or three kind of golden rules that you kind of go by to reduce that that stress. Because I know you mentioned one, spin class definitely isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah, we
1: were talking about that before. Yes. Um the punishing one's body. I mean, that, it's almost a subconscious activity that I see people doing. They don't. They're not really mindful of what they're doing to themselves until you talk about it with them, and they realise, oh yes, I have actually, if I think about it, been using that language about my body, where I've been, you know, basically feeling hatred to oneself you know, for what has happened, for what has transpired. You know, I have women say to me, you know, my body has failed me. I feel numb to that area of my body, like referring to kind of the lower abdomen and the impact it has on a couple sex life. You know, if they're trying to conceive partnered, it's, it's very wide reaching. So the first thing is really support structure. Okay. So the the amazing thing that I found certain the last couple of years, as I've learned with social media is that it can be obviously, um, Uh, a force for good as well as a force for evil. Um, So I know that for a lot of people, they can go down sort of the comparison rabbit hole, but I think with fertility, because it's intensely private for a lot of people, uh, and still is, it's just the nature of it, it's still that kind of taboo and stigma associated with it, that when people actually access others online and realize, oh, actually I'm not the only one, and this person completely understands what I'm going through, That's really critical because as humans, as we've learned uh, since COVID, we need that contact, we need that support structure. And so it's very important to not um, shut yourself off. You know, don't be the ostrich with the head in the sand thinking that, no, no, you can power through and get through this alone. You need the support structure in whatever guise that might take. So whether it's a particular friend that you feel you can confide in, uh, whether it's professional support in terms of counselling, obviously plenty of them are are still consulting, obviously over over Zoom, um, or whether it be um, a group online, a forum of others who are going through the same as yourself. If you don't have an outlet, you will implode. And I've, I've watched that happen. I've seen people, the, the people who I'm concerned with, you know, so often when I see people they're apologizing for, you know, being in tears within five minutes of us starting to talk, I would never, um, you know, I would actually be more concerned about someone who didn't do that. So it's the people who are stoic, yeah. you know, <laughs> those who are sitting there, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. I've got my action plan. Everything's fine. I'm concerned about because they're the ones who tend to crumble eventually. the the cracks will start to show. So that's really key. Second thing I'd recommend is you have to find something that brings you joy. I made a concerted effort after last year, watching back some of my Q&As, you know, in the initial uh, aftermath of this happening sort of in, in April, May, I could see how stressed i was i like could see it in my mannerisms my speech my my breath was short and i thought no that's not good jessica you can't do that so i started making the decision that after you know a day of consultations where i'm hearing obviously stuff that can be quite deep and intense every evening i would watch comedy so i what i you name the stand up comedian i have watched them online <laughs> every youtube video um and my husband just you know, became accustomed to the fact that he'd just hear me laughing from the bathroom while brushing my teeth because I needed that outlet. There had to be balance, you know? And as one of my clients so accurately put it last year, she said, Do you know what, Jessica, I'm just zero crack. Just all crack has gone from my life completely. And, and it's so accurate because when all there is to focus on is COVID and trying to conceive, You know, because for so many people, you couldn't travel, you can't go to weddings, you can't, there's no celebration of life. All there was was focusing on that end goal of getting pregnant, either non-assisted or assisted. And that's too intense for anyone to handle. So I think we have to be quite conscious about bringing joy into our lives as well.
0: In relation to like, because I think Christmas can be a trigger as well for those that are struggling with fertility issues, because obviously... Christmas is, is time for celebrations. Christmas is a time for family. Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's orientated towards kids with with Santa and stuff like that. How do you kind of work around it with clients and kind of how not to kind of get as triggered um, uh, with 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 Christmas and that kind of side thing? Because this is coming out like Completely. five days before Christmas.
1: Yeah. So funnily enough, weirdly, I think in the in the past couple of years, like I said, this will be our second Christmas dealing with this. Because of the fact that all the, um, you know, the restrictions have meant that people couldn't have the same Christmas uh, celebrations together. I think it was kind of a case of out of sight, out of mind. Yes. So a lot of people didn't have to see their young nieces or nephews or cousins or anything that was that reminder of, oh, this is what we're missing out on. It was almost like people were given permission to have that quiet Christmas at home and it was okay. So, you know, I've been trying to find all the silver linings and all of this. And I think there definitely have been some, you know, people have been able to go to fertility clinic appointments and things like that without having to worry about explaining anything to their boss because they're at home. (laughs) So they don't have to make any excuses. So I think it's the same at Christmas. I think you have to. Get good at giving sort of a firm but present no, like just saying, no, actually, we're going to be doing our own thing this year. And thank you so much for the invite, but like, we're good. Um, especially if people don't know what you're going through, as is so often the case.
0: And it's also, you don't need to explain yourself. I think that's the hardest part for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Is like, well, people keep prying and prying and prying. Like, why aren't you coming out? It's mm-hmm. like, you don't need to explain yourself. It takes more effort to say yes than it does to say no.
1: True. Don't need very, to say, very it? true. It? it's a good Uh, word to learn. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, You have uh, the the questions and stuff. Those few questions were just off the top of my head. They weren't what I sent over to you at all. But in relation to the post and stuff, you have a golden rule for fertility and stuff. And you kind of say you should make it yours as well. What is that golden rule for fertility?
1: So when you're talking about um, fertility and and all aspects of it, whether it be trying non-assisted or assisted, it's so important um, to not make any assumptions about what you think you've checked already, what should be checked, making assumptions about what your body can do. You know, so often in this field, I see that it's actually about belief structures. So I've quite literally had people told, you will never conceive yourself, it'll have to be with assistance. Now, think about how someone internalizes that, yeah. it becomes a belief structure. Um, Or you will never conceive with your own eggs. You need to go for egg donation. So when someone is being told that, particularly from someone in a position of authority that they believe should be an expert in their field, it can be unbelievably damaging. Um, and so often part of my work is is breaking down those belief structures. And it involves a lot of repetition. <laughs> I mean, I know this from doing my Q A's every week. I see it from the questions that come in, Oh no, but my AMH is this. And I, I talked about this last week where I shared like three different studies of like, here we go, guys, I'm gonna keep going to show you. And these were all published like 2020, 2021 talking about how AMH has no reflection on the quality of your eggs and not just that doesn 't even seem to impact outcome with fertility treatment in spite of what have we we have been told, so definitely don 't make assumptions. Um, another golden rule will be to say to be consistent that the small changes over time really do add up. you know you do build a wall brick by brick, and I think That's really easy for someone to say, like, just because something is easy or simple to describe doesn't mean it's it's actually going to be straightforward to complete, you know, to to stick with. So I do get that. Um, But exactly like I think you've referenced many times as well is that, you know, you're not going to mess something up by just having one meal at the weekend, like perspective, guys. You know, Um, And that, I think, goes back to the kind of perfectionism thing in society, you know, of this idea that everything has to be so rigid um, and we break the rules. That's it may as well give up entirely. And that's not the case at all. So I would say, yeah, three things. Don't make assumptions, be consistent, and prepare, prepare, prepare. (laughs) Preparation is key.
0: And stay away from Dr. Google.
1: Yes, yeah, very much so.
0: What resources would you kind of go to or would you kind of point people towards if they're kind of looking for information? Like you've talked about papers and so yes. forth. The <clears throat> papers can be so technical and you're just kind of looking the review, yes. but you're kind of missing the actual, where's well, a meta or whatever it may be. But where yeah. would, what would be the two or three sources that you kind of put people towards?
1: Well, that's what I really try to do a lot of the time is I try to take all the, the medical a's and the technical speak. And just make it simple for people, just make it make sense um because in fact, I remember this going back to my law days um you know a lot of the the legal as is they used Latin language on purpose to make it elite, so that you know the the lower classes couldn't understand what was being said, and that was something they were trying to edit out. Um, And you'd see a lot of the same things happening as as well within medicine that people don't understand something, but actually the fundamentals are quite easy to understand. So it's about breaking it down. So what I'd say to people to look for is, yes, look for people who are looking at the evidence, of course, but also those who are properly reading it and reading between the lines. Like I I was recently speaking about uh, a study that was published last week, which was talking about... The pros or cons or benefits or otherwise of genetic testing of embryos, and a lot of the headlines that had been published about it. And I have to say as well, a lot of the people I saw talking about it on social media were just like parrots regurgitating that headline, saying, "You know, study shows that genetic testing of embryos isn't beneficial." I said, well, "Hang on, <laughs> did anybody like look a bit deeper, um, and you know, read what it was about?" In that case, they weren't. Um, looking at the population who would benefit from genetic testing. They were really looking at the people who I would never suggest to do it in the first place. Those uh, of younger age, like 20 to 37, No prior history of unsuccessful IVF, no secondary health conditions, no sperm problems, no anatomical issues. They were basically perfect. (laughs) And needless to say, the embryos um, didn't, you know, the embryos created that weren't tested had just as good outcome as those that were tested because odds are they were good embryos, you know. Um, It was completely ignoring those who'd gone through miscarriage, uh, recurrent implantation failure, had problems with sperm, had secondary health conditions, were over 40. So that's what I mean. You have to be able to look at the research, but then understand, have the understanding, and obviously, if you don't have training in that, I know it can be hard to discern it yourself. But to realise that it's not individualised, you know. So, for example, when I try to explain reference ranges to people, people say, oh, "But the research says that th- that this is the ideal level uh, for a particular blood marker." The problem there is that if a piece of research is looking at, let's say, 100 people to discern, you know, the bell curve of where is the mean average uh, level of this particular marker. If the population in itself is in suboptimal health, you are going to get a skewed reference range. And I suppose no greater example of this than the semen analysis, which we have watched over the last, probably since the 70s, I, and I mean, I've been in this ear area for 16 years, so I've seen the levels drop. When I started, <coughs> excuse me, the um, sperm count in millions per milliliter, the range was set at, it should be no less than 40. Then it dropped to 25, and now it's at 15. So they keep shifting the goalposts. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that that is a healthy level for conception. And I just think that's something that people need to be really aware of is um research is great but you have to be able to look at it um with nuance
0: and if you're going in for your first kind of fertility checkup and stuff like that or your first fertility appointment and you're going in with the with the doctor and stuff mm-hmm. like three what are mm-hmm. the three tips are you kind of have and is there any questions that you would bring with you that mm-hmm. would help someone because i know for myself from having health issues previously doctors can talk at you
1: yes Yes.
0: Um, And you're kind of like, I don't understand anything you've just said. You may as well speak in Japanese. Yes. And then they struggle to decipher and why you don't understand it. And it's kind of like, that's not their fault of their own. That's mm. the way they've processed it. Yes. Um, But uh, the three tips and kind of any questions that you would kind of bring along with you for your first appointment.
1: So, what I'd say on that front is if there is anything that you anticipate in advance, That you are likely to be called out on. So the most common things I would see there would be, number one, oh, I'm over 40, or even I'm close to my mid-40s. All they're going to talk about is my age um, and AMH, et cetera. If you already have a fear of that before you attend the appointment, face it head on. Write an email to the clinic, or ideally say, can this be forwarded on to my consultant who will be speaking with me, addressing this issue and saying, look, I'm well aware of my age. Thank you. I know my birth date. So that's not going to be the focus of this consultation. That's that's not what I'm here for. I want to know about options. And if you send that in advance, that can just help to actually level the playing field because now you're actually dictating terms rather than having everything driven for you. Um, second category, that would definitely apply for as well as anybody concerned about BMI because the clinics, unfortunately, can be very very prejudiced on this topic and it's, it can be soul destroying for people because they're left feeling, uh, powerless. Um, they're not even offered basic blood work that'd be offered to any other person. And it's utterly daft (laughs) because of the fact that it's, it's not good science. You know, if, if it were the case, like I've said many times before, if elevated BMI were the predominant factor for fertility, then that's all I would see. I would only ever see that. I would never see anybody of average or lower BMI. And therefore, I would come out and state, "Okay, guys, this is an issue. Um, But that's not the case. So getting ahead of that as well. Sending an email uh, in advance, making it clear that you do not want your weight to be the focus of the discussion. You would rather they're focusing on the biochemistry. What blood work are we going to do? How are we going to figure this out? Let's look at the hormones. Let's look at the sperm. Let's look at everything. So I suppose that's the first tip is the advanced prep because like i said then you're dictating things on your terms and that is a really important thing to remember remember like anything in medicine but i think in the world of fertility people are so vulnerable i would compare it actually to it's it's pretty comparable to someone going through cancer and um, there are similar levels of fear and vulnerability in one case is the fear of losing your life and the other case it's the fear that you'll never be able to create one um and so when people are vulnerable they're very open to suggestion and they're second guessing themselves all the time and the last thing you want is that feeling of and i know this has happened to so many people in their lives we've all had those situations where you're you're in a moment And you just don't think the questions don't come to you and then you leave and afterwards you're like, oh, why didn't I ask that? Or, you know, why did I allow them to to continue on a certain tack where I knew that was not something I was interested in? So, for example, you know, when you go to a fertility clinic, it shouldn't be an automatic conversation about IVF. You know, there are a number of different other options available. You know, has everything been checked that could potentially affect your chances of conceiving non-assisted as well? You know, I can't tell you how many people I've seen who've gone to um, meet with the clinic and no one at any point, not their GP or even the consultant in the clinic that they eventually meet mentioned checking their tubes, mentioned, you know, maybe we should have a look inside first before you jump to IVF. Uh, Of course, I understand the scenarios where someone is concerned about time uh, or age that they might want to jump into IVF straight away. But the point is, is that you should be given all the options. So the the second point I'd make is about proper medically informed consent. So this is critical, okay? Um, When attending any clinic, Don't think that you have to, uh, number one, sign on the dotted line uh, on that visit. Never do that, ever. Um, Half the time, you know, anything that you're signing is about 20 pages long. You know, you do sign your life away for these things. You need to go away with the information, allow yourself to digest it and be very wary. Uh, Of course, I'm not saying all clinics are like this, but I have heard of it happening. You know, I'm hearing the direct feedback from people's experiences that they have been essentially sold. Uh, a particular package of, you know, do this amount of fertility treatment cycles and, you know, we'll guarantee you a baby kind of thing. And you need to really step back um, after the appointment and allow yourself to digest that information. So don't sign in the dotted line at the time. And also, um, as I was saying about informed consent, make sure that you're being offered information and the feeling you should have of uh, afterwards is, oh, I've been left with, you know, these four options. And I've been given the um, medical advice in terms of, you know, what research there is on a particular treatment or investigation so that I can make that decision. If at any point you're feeling dictated to, I would recommend going elsewhere. That's for sure. So I recommend that. And also obviously having your questions listed in advance um, so that you're fully prepared when you go in there. A lot of the time people just chat to each other and go, "Okay, yes, we've got that. Yeah. And then they go in. And then they realize, no, everything has gone out of my head. (laughs) I've forgotten it all. I don't know what I'm meant to be asking. Um, So definitely have the notes on your phone and be ready to ask questions.
0: I really like that idea of kind of being prepped before you kind of go in. And like, I I think everyone's been at that point where they've had a discussion or an argument with someone that kind of like, I wish I said that to kind of like, get get one up on someone but i think one of the things that i've kind of come across over the last little while particularly with say the likes of getting checked like pcos or ha or any of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff is that some doctors and some gps are a little bit reluctant to kind of like take the hormone screening um mm-hmm. they kind of like ask why the hell do you need this you you, you don't need this but then I'd say nine out of 10 times that the mm-hmm. person has kind of like kind of said back, no, I have the right to do this, mm-hmm. They generally found out what was going on, whether it was LH or something like that, that was kind of issues or prolactin or whatever it may be. But how do you kind of move someone away from feeling uncomfortable um, about being saying, no, this is my right to get my hormone screen.
1: So this is a cultural thing. Okay. I mean, it's a big issue for us, I think um, particularly in Ireland, but of course around the world, This um, goes back many years of, of, you know, whether it be white coat syndromes, you know, stress that a lot of people have about any medical visits, much like going to the dentist. Um, And also this belief that, oh, well, they're all knowing, you know, they're like God, they they know everything. And so who am I to ask any questions? But I think we know well that, that that isn't obviously the case. And so a few things that I recommend to people, there's very um, handy phrases that one can use. <laughs> so whenever I've had clients in the same situation um, who I've told to go to their doctor or indeed to a fertility clinic and ask for a particular test to be done, if they're refused, I say to them to put it this way, and ideally in writing as well, because then there's a record of it, um, is to say, okay, so you're guaranteeing me that X, Y, or Z um, condition or situation hasn't uh actually arisen uh because clearly you're clairvoyant um and you you seemingly know uh my blood work without checking it so you're you're willing to sign off on that are you and um, they'll be very quick to change their tune because what they're scared a lot more of than anything you might say to them is liability. <laughs> so <laughs> this is like I going back to my law days as well. You learn a few things. Um, and goodness me, in second year law, uh, medical law. Wow. <laughs> that was a scary subject. Um, when you're seeing what goes on, negligence cases, et cetera. So really, when you're talking about anything to do with healthcare, those who shout the loudest get heard. And it shouldn't have to be that way. And I wish it weren't that way. But you really do have to push. No one is going to fight your corner for you. You have to be willing to stand up. Um, And if you need encouragement in doing that, then, of course, uh, bring someone along with you to an appointment, Um, especially for those, I might add, who are going through a solo IVF journey. Uh, You know, I, I remember dealing with a woman last year who said to me, she said, you know, it's just so hard. I, I literally have no one else to speak about this with other than you. Um, and of course, with COVID, needless to say, loads more people have been going to freeze eggs or um, go for donor sperm and create embryos because they're like, I can't meet someone. <laughs> There's no opportunity. So it is really important um, to be able to stand up for yourself. And if that means writing stuff down, like your little speech before you go in, or those little phrases, like I said, so are you guaranteeing me? And another brilliant one is um, I would like a second medical opinion, please. <laughs> that shuts them down very quickly. <laughs> they realize, okay. Um, so, and uh, never be afraid to ask for, well, what's the evidence behind this? Uh, you know, I'm not interested in someone who says, um, oh, it's just been my clinical experience you know, well, I have a clinical experience too, but I'm not going to give people anecdotal evidence. Um, that's fine in certain situations, but you still have to be able to back it up.
0: Interesting. So yeah, there's your sentence. <laughs> yeah. Just just copy and paste whatever we just said. <laughs> what about from a male perspective? Because mm-hmm. I think not that we get, not that lads get forgotten, but it can be female orientated an awful lot. And I've seen from, Talking to clients and stuff before that, mm-hmm. that that sometimes it's it's the male kind of that is the is the one that kind of is struggling with the fertility side of things. What can a man do in relation to improving his 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 sperm strength basically or his kind of like the likelihood of get of of helping out, if you know what I mean?
1: Well, it's it's more than sometimes. That's the first yeah. thing to note. It is 50-50. So if you're looking at the breakdown of um, for example, unexplained fertility issues um it's it's forty percent female, forty percent male twenty percent unknown in other words it's it's an even split, so and am I that that's not even a diagnosis unexplained fertility that's <laughs> a whole separate <laughs> discussion um it's the case if you haven't looked hard enough so for the male, yes, it is extremely hard for those with testes to be sitting you know in an appointment and be just like the person in the corner not being spoken to or addressed. Um, and a particular couple comes to mind who I remember dealing with a few years ago, who uh, we'd done the investigations um, after they'd seen a fertility clinic where his partner had been told at the age of 33 that she needed egg donation and that this was why they were having terrible outcome with their IVF treatment. And so I just remember so clearly her sitting in front of me as I gave the results and explained that actually no... It was my professional opinion that the bulk of the problem was coming from the sperm quality. And I remember her eyes just going glassy as as she was trying to absorb this information that no, she was not broken. No, it was not her eggs. She was not dealing with premature ovarian insufficiency or anything close to it. Um, and he was just so kind. He just turned to her and he said, see, I knew it. I knew it was me. Um, and he said, now I, of course, are very quick to say, well, it's not you. We're not going to personalize this. It's not anyone's fault, but he was just so, um, compassionate. It was just such a lovely moment to watch between a couple as he described, you know, remember, and then of course he told me all the stuff. Yeah, that kick I got playing football. And I remember I had that groin pain and all this stuff. And it all made sense. For why the sperm damage had arisen. So, if you're talking about things that can be done, it's it can be complex. Okay. So, when you're talking about sperm quality and its unfortunate decline over the last you know seventy odd years, um, the bulk of it they believe goes back to diet and lifestyle, um, or indeed environmental exposure to toxins. So that's that's a huge component. Um, But then there's also other aspects. So like I described there, trauma to the area. You know, I've seen plenty who play football or uh, do triathletes or triathlons, I should say, who are cycling and therefore that's putting pressure on the perineum and heating up the area. And the, the sperm don't like that. They don't like heat. So you have to look to that. You have to look to infections as well. Sometimes it can be subclinical infections that have not been picked up on. In other words, things that don't cause any symptoms for either partner, but might actually be affecting the sperm. So you have to look quite deep actually to investigate properly what the root cause is. Um, But so often, unfortunately, what I see people being told is go off, wear loose boxers and eat better. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's It's too generic. And uh, just thinking of a, a couple actually had last year, they were very young, only in their early thirties. And, um, and I think possibly because, you know, COVID made uh, a lot of people look to swimming in the sea because there's nothing else they could be doing. And he had picked up an infection likely from sea swimming. And this fellow was as healthy as they come as fit as they come ate very well. And when he would received his sperm results that were poor, he was shell shocked. It was actually, that's something I'm very conscious of when dealing, um, uh, with those with testes, because of the fact that nothing is directed at them in conversation about fertility, it can be a massive blow to have anything said about the sperm. It's just a complete shock because they just they never entertained that possibility, especially if they've been going through this process for years, and at no point was it mentioned they might have done a semen analysis, you know, three years ago, and it's like carry on, everything's grand. Um, it can be a bit of a shock to discover that it's not. So so that is why, yes, I would be a big advocate for not just checking the semen analysis, which just tells you how many sperm there are, how well they're swimming, and the shape, the count, motility, morphology, but also making sure to do the sperm DNA fragmentation test. And all the latest research is in agreement with that. There's no question it needs to be done.
0: I remember kind of growing up as a teenager and hearing the rumor around a certain drink, a four-letter word, a drink, about sperm count.
1: Four-letter drink.
0: I can say it. Okay. Oh, Really? Yeah, I think I remember growing up as a teenager, and that was the the ones like if you drank too much of that, it was going to have an impact on your uh, sperm count.
1: Certainly, any excess sugar intake can affect your sperm count. I was just reading a piece of research on that the other day, um, just about dysglycemia. So anyone who's having problems with blood sugar reg- regulation or showing signs of insulin resistance, we talk about that a lot for those who might be on the PCOS spectrum, yeah. but actually it can affect the sperm too. So anything that can raise um, oxidation, you know, so causing inflammation and uh, free radical damage can affect the sperm because they're being made every day. So
0: I wanted to just say that that was a rumor. I'm not basing that on <laughs> any evidence so Before okay. anyone <laughs> listening to this. I'm we, um <laughs> In relation to kind of like some of the the stigmas that kind of get attached mm-hmm. around fertility issues, because even whether from a male or a female point of view, kind of what are the, what what can be done to kind of improve this? Um, I think from an understanding point of view and from mm-hmm. a practitioner point of view, because I think it's 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 two way street. Really, it has the relationship has to be there.
1: You're right, and the problem is at the moment for this generation of those trying to conceive. So I'm bang in the middle of the sort of cohort age group of people I'll be working with. So I'm 40 and I'd be dealing with people from sort of 30 up to 45 plus and or sometimes younger actually in their 20s if they have PCOS and they're being dismissed that it's not a problem. Come back to us when you want to get pregnant and they want to deal with it rightly so. so I think it's it's difficult for this current generation trying to conceive because things are so ingrained, you know, it's, it's, you know, the saying goes hard to teach an old doggy tricks. It's difficult to undo years of conditioning. So for our generation, it was the conditioning of you so much as look at each other, you'll get pregnant. It's why I, I talked about that in my TED talk, because I wanted, when I was thinking about what to discuss and I was tracking it back, tracking it back, said, well, where does it all begin? It begins with the education. Um, And I'm happy to report from what I've seen so far, like my daughter is 13, so she's obviously at a stage where she's uh, having these lessons in school um, about, you know, relationships and sex and health and everything. And it does seem to be improving. You know, um we also forget that, for all again the the negatives associated with social media um this is a generation now that are growing up with social media, not just discovering it as we did um you know in our early twenties, they're living with it, so they hear so much, they are learning so much more than we would have ever been privy to and and that's a really good thing, I think because they're asking more questions um You know, they're aware of things like the Me Too movement. They're aware of sexuality, any form or type on the spectrum. You know, we hadn't a clue. Um, And therefore, people lived in fear. Now, obviously, there's the negative side, too, which is comparison to others, obsession with aesthetics and, you know, that narcissistic component. But there's going to be pros and cons to everything in life. It's how you address it. So I think how it can be helped is for actually the people of the generation now to look to the younger generation as well, look to how they're speaking and realize that, oh, actually we can learn from that. We can learn to be more open. Um, uh, it just is going to take time, unfortunately.
0: Good things take time though.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, in relation to kind of like that, you've mentioned IVF. IVF has kind of come up a little bit in our conversation. Kind The of last two questions are in relation to like, why IVF isn't a quick fix for pregnancy loss. And I think mm. some people can get triggered by this answer. Um, so we kind of have to be like a little bit careful on how the answer is.
1: Oh, of course. Don't worry. I'm well used to that. <laughs> <laughs> all I'm dealing with all day long is things that are sensitive topics. Yeah. Um. So, so first of all, putting, putting our, putting ourselves in the position of someone who has gone through pregnancy loss and is trying to figure out what to do next. Um, and it's something I'm hugely passionate about. Uh, you know, I, I've program on it because of that, because I could see that what was happening was it was a case of should go off and try again. And if that's not working, if you keep miscarrying, having a suffering pregnancy loss, well then go to a fertility clinic and why? Because that's all that's on offer. OK, so it's it's no one's fault who's going through that to think, well, this would be the next logical step. Um, and in in certain cases, it can be beneficial if they're dealing with a consultant who knows, OK, so your issue isn't actually the getting pregnant part. The issue is what's happening thereafter. And there's two components really to that. The first is the quality of the embryo. And of course, is some if someone is getting pregnant regularly, you might think, oh, well, sure, the sperm and egg must be fine because they're getting pregnant. Not always. And in fact, the most common thing I see in that scenario is going back to the sperm. If the sperm semen analysis is really good, so they're all swimming well, they're flying up there, but the DNA frag is poor, it means the sperm is carrying compromised genetic material. So if it's doing the job of reaching the egg and fertilization happens, then it's much more likely that a miscarriage will occur because the body will realize, hmm, this isn't actually the kind of DNA we wanted and it'll reject, hence the miscarriage arising. So that's actually far more common than it being about the woman's egg quality. So um, that needs to be looked at and that's something that obviously can be done. If someone has had multiple miscarriages, you can do genetic testing of the embryos, do the PGTA. Um, That's just pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. So you'll hear these words, aneuploidy meaning you know, a flaw in a cell versus a euploid cell, which is healthy. So if you do that testing, then at least you can know, OK, my embryos are actually fine. If you could, got testing done of, let's say, four embryos, and three out of four of them were good, safe to say your pregnancy losses were not happening because of flaw with the egg or the sperm. Um, So once you know that, then it allows you to divert all resources and focus to the internal environment, because there must be something going on in there that is preventing the pregnancies from continuing. And in those scenarios, usually it's some kind of immune component or blood clotting issue that might be going on. There can obviously be nutrient deficiencies involved as well. I've definitely seen that. And that can often be overlooked or hormone imbalance, but there is something happening uh, within you know, the reproductive system that is preventing the pregnancy from continuing.
0: What about an IVF checklist that you would kind of like go through?
1: In advance. Do you mean what we discussed earlier?
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So in terms of, um, the checklist, if you're talking about pregnancy loss, like I said, the first unknown, you do need to know the quality of the embryos. Now, some, if they are of a much younger age, um, they might decide, okay, well, on balance, and obviously because it costs a lot more for genetic testing, on balance, I think I'd like to check the internal environment first. Mm. So they might just do it in that order, which is perfectly fine and would make logical sense. If you're 32 and suffering recurrent miscarriage, if you've ruled out the sperm and the sperm DNA frag is fine, you're safer. I mean, you can't ever guarantee, but you're safer in assuming, okay, well, it's less likely to be my eggs because of my age. Um, But take note, if you have a background secondary health condition, so if someone is in their early 30s but has actually got rheumatoid arthritis or has some kind of autoimmune condition, Um, then you can't be so sure because anything that can cause inflammation or indeed endometriosis can affect egg quality. So never make assumptions. Um, But if you are in that age bracket, usually you could proceed with doing the internal investigations first. So they might be doing anatomical checkups to make sure there's no polyps or fibroids or anything within the womb that's affecting you when you get pregnant um, that would be detracting from success rates, checking the lining thickness to make sure that that's sufficient to support implantation and a pregnancy continuing, particularly if you're suffering very early pregnancy losses. So for some, if they're suffering what's known as a chemical pregnancy, which is a frustrating term, it basically means the pregnancy is over before it's begun. So you might do an early pregnancy test and it's positive, but by the time you're doing, let's say the blood test for beta HCG, that's already dropping off. So the pregnancy has stopped. Uh, before you've even reached the point of a scan. So in those situations, it is mind-numbingly frustrating because in most cases, if someone has suffered multiple pregnancy losses, they will at some stage, although it should be by the second, um, but certainly by the third, they should be offered the option of cytogenetic testing. So if you can see that the embryonic tissues were uh, flawed in some way there was a chromosomal issue then that might give you the information you need to decide okay well if i go to a fertility clinic and um, then i can avail of the genetic testing to rule out this problem you know so it's, it's really about information gathering
0: and asking questions mm-hmm. and being prepared with your questions before i book questions not from dr google
1: <laughs> yes um although i Say this. Um, to be fair, I again pros and cons. I I love it when people come to me who've researched something and they they know a lot about a particular area. They're asking the questions. I'm more than happy to have that conversation. And I think it's a healthy thing to be curious and to ask questions and to not just take what you're told as gospel. Um, but on the other hand, yes, I know a little information can be a dangerous thing yeah. if it's misconstrued. So people do need to be careful how much they invest in what they read.
0: I think this is going to be one of those episodes that someone's going to have to listen back to about three or four times in order to decipher exactly what's going on. Because there's so much in it and there's so there many different elements to it There's for both genders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's an incredibly impactful episode and I think I help I hopefully it'll help someone that's kind of going through it. Where can people find out and watch your TED talk? Where can people find out about yourself and where can people find out and work with you as well, Jessica?
1: Sure. So um uh, my website jessicaburk.com um and you can see the TED talks embedded there or just you can look that up online. Um and uh, of course, in terms of, um, working with me at the moment, things are a little bit hectic. So I've taken a break, um, from one-to-ones for a while because I'm working on background projects. That's part of the reason why I've gone to Barcelona to check out fertility clinics, um, is because yeah, I'll, I'll be working on a number of projects that will be related to, uh, to IVF and fertility clinics and to sperm health. Um, so there's a lot that's going to be coming in 2022 for sure. Busy, so busy. check out Instagram and follow along and then you'll you'll hear what's going on.
0: Busy, busy, which is a good yeah. complaint to have. <laughs> uh, Jessica, thank you so much for, for coming on. Hopefully the family are recovered in the next kind of couple of days. I
1: hope so or, too. Yeah, yeah,
0: particularly ahead of Christmas and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, guys, if you want to give that a share and even pop Jessica mess around like that or tag us up on your stories, please do. So Jessica, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, Shane.